no one's really tested autonomous vehicle technology in any consistent manner at, you know, 150 miles per hour and above. This is CES Tech Talk. I'm James Kotecki. The most influential tech events in the world is back in Las Vegas, January 5th through 8th. And we are here to preview CES 2022. Today, a look at the future of mobility. Or is it the future of sports? With the Indy Autonomous Challenge, you get both. Here's the pitch. University teams program self-driving cars to compete at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Paul Mitchell is the president and CEO of the organization behind this challenge, Energy Systems Network. Paul, welcome to the show. Imagine it's the day of the challenge. We're sitting in the stands. Describe the experience. What are we seeing? You're seeing uh, history being made, right? You're seeing for the first time high-speed race cars that are already exciting to to watch and 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 to, to hear and almost to feel as they go by, and then. At some point, you know, it clicks that there's nobody driving the cars, right? That they're completely autonomous and it just kind of sends you to this next level of awe. And I think that's that was the feeling I had. And I think certainly the feeling of of most that were were in the audience. It's just kind of a, you know, I'm I'm witnessing something that has just never happened before. And there's something really exciting about that. And this challenge took place at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on October 23rd, 2021. That was the first time that this challenge had happened. Is that right? That's right. So, I mean, we had been running these autonomous vehicles um, all summer getting ready for the competition. But the first time that, you know, the people from the public and sponsors and kind of the broader world got a look at these vehicles running autonomously was on the most famous racetrack in the world, often called the racing capital of the world, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So that that was a fitting venue, um, given the track's history and legacy as a proving ground for early automotive technology at the turn of the century. And now, you know, we're, we're, we're in a new century proving out, you know, the next generation of automotive innovation. And if you didn't tell me that it was an autonomous challenge and I just showed up at the track that day, would I be able to figure out pretty quickly that something's different or would it look pretty similar to a human driven race? I, I think... As the cars go by, they're open wheel race cars. Um, they're moving 130, 150, you know, topped out around uh, 160 almost miles per hour. Um, and, and the sound of the car is going to be the same. You know, as they go by, they're going by pretty quick. And, and so kind of figuring out there's no driver in there might take a couple of times if no mm -hmm. one told you. Um, but the reality is where, where there's a cockpit, you usually can see a person's helmet and a head, head that's maybe exposed a little bit. There's a really sleek, aerodynamic, uh, 3D printed cockpit cover that, that covers up our, our suite of autonomous uh, uh, sensors and, and advanced uh, supercomputers. And so, you know, I think if you look at the car, you can kind of tell there's probably no room for a person in it the way it's designed, uh, which is kind of kind of neat. So when these cars are being designed and programmed, what exactly are the individual team's changing and tinkering with what is allowed to be different about each vehicle and what has to be the same? You know, the Indy Autonomous Challenge, the, the prize competition that has been going on for two years and, and with, with the final prize given out uh, uh, on October 23rd was always about 
university teams competing on software. Uh, so it was a software competition to design the algorithms that could pilot these fully autonomous race cars. The car, uh, which was frankly its own challenge to design, engineer, build, and test and validate, is meant to be exactly the same for each team. Same components, same hardware, same base software uh, that, that helps all the components talk to one another, and exact same setup in terms of the downforce, the tires, the air pressure, everything is set up exactly the same. Uh, and the engine tuning is, is meant to be the same. So that the only variable that's different is the algorithms that are loaded into that, that robot race car yeah. uh, that tells it what to do and, and, and how to operate. You know, you ask what can teams do, you know, leading up to the competition. They can't really do anything with respect to the, the, the hardware uh, on the vehicle. They can't make any modifications to the engines uh, or the drivetrain or the tires or wheels. We actually have a, a racing crew uh, that's a mixture of traditional motorsports backgrounds and autonomous vehicle technology backgrounds, uh, including some people we actually hired from Clemson University that helped design, design the car, some graduate students that are the ones that are really taking care of these vehicles and making sure that we keep the teams supported with what they need, but also avoiding teams having to make modifications that could, you know, somehow give them an advantage or change yeah. out the, the configurations. So if this is about software and all the cars are basically the same in terms of hardware, what was the difference between the winning team on the day of the original challenge and the team that came in last place? How much of a difference, I guess I'm asking, does software really make? Well, it makes a huge difference. I think one of the things that was really clear with our, our event on the 23rd at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was, you know, that while all of our teams have come a very long way, uh, every single one of the nine teams that competed had completed fully autonomous laps with their cars at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. That was a, a, a pre-requirement for participating in the event that day. But the difference was very visible. We had some teams that were unable to make it out of the pits without a, an accident uh, or, mm -hmm. or couldn't get out of the pits at all. A couple of teams that were in that, that unfortunate situation. Um, and then we had teams that were making very clean runs, you know, doing everything that the competition required, which, you know, wasn't just high speed operations. It also required constant uh, following of race control commands that are sent virtually to the car and also uh, an obstacle detection and avoidance at high speed. So there was there was a gap uh, between top handful of teams and yeah. and and those uh, that were still in development. But there's a lot of reasons for that. It, it's not a a knock on the universities or uh, or anything of that nature. I think it's really just time and and background coming into the competition. Some of our teams have been working on high speed automation for a few years now, and also brought more resources to the table. Other teams they hadn't really touched one of these types of autonomous high speed vehicles until you know maybe uh, July, and just had really a, a short few months to to get ready for a competition that had never been achieved by anybody. Uh, so. While there is a variety of capabilities among our teams, everyone walks away a winner in the sense that everybody advanced the state-of-the-art in autonomous technology. Some just maybe advanced a little further. I really want to talk about what kind of advancements were made over the course of this competition, but I do not want to skip over the big news, the exciting news for people who are looking forward to CES 2022 and what they're going to be able to experience from the Indianapolis Autonomous Challenge in Las Vegas, being brought to Las Vegas. So can you tell us what's, uh, what you're going to be doing at CES 2022? 
Yeah. So, you know, we, we began getting asked um, before October 23rd, well, what's next? You know, what are you going to do next? And, and we thought long and hard about that. And our friends at uh, the Consumer Technology Association and, and CES, who we had such a great partnership with when we debuted our car there and, at Virtual CES 2021, you know, we, we got together and had this idea of what if we ran a racing event at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway during CES and made it an official part of the CES, you know, agenda and, and programming. And, you know, to me, it's uh, a, a great opportunity to amplify what we've done, take it to the next level and showcase it with an audience that really, truly understands the, the importance of the technology that's being developed. So we're going to be running our cars at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway on the afternoon of January 7th as part of CES. And I couldn't be more excited to, uh, to showcase it to the entire uh, audience, the people that are both going to be there uh, at the Speedway and, and others that are going to be watching uh, uh, on, on the virtual CES. Well, we really look forward to that. CES is, of course, always about innovations, advancements, what's next. You mentioned that this competition had advanced the state of the art in the technology. Is this challenge more about major breakthroughs? Is it more about kind of slow and steady improvements? How do you see that? So I think there's kind of uh, both. Um, on the hardware side, I think we are making some some slow and steady advancements. The What we learned is that uh, the components that we use for these race cars, we call it the AV, the Delara AV21 uh, autonomous vehicle uh, for 21, the year it was it was engineered, are off the shelf, but they're still very cutting edge uh, hardware and components, uh, LIDAR, radar, mm -hmm. uh, optical sensors, supercomputers, GPS systems, um, all from leading suppliers that are supplying the automotive industry. But those components often have not been put into an application where they're required to go 130, 150 miles an hour in a race car. And so we're, we're seeing things that can be designed differently or, or, or updates that can be made to make these components work even better at high speeds. And we saw that come out of the competition. And a lot of our sponsors maybe didn't know that going into this challenge that they would get, you know, applied research benefits from it. But <laughs> yeah. But they clearly got that. The big kind of stepwise improvements or, or innovations that are more breakthrough, I think, is in the, the, the algorithm, so the software algorithm that can determine how a vehicle can operate fully autonomously in high speeds, close counter interactions with other autonomous vehicles. And so I think, you know, the, the code and the algorithms developed by our teams, uh, that's where there's some breakthrough being done. I, I, I do not believe... I've, we certainly could be wrong and we'd have to sort of test it out to see, but I don't think you could take a, a an off-the-shelf commercial algorithm being used in some of the low-speed autonomous applications that are being tested around the world and just drop it into our car and and, and have it work effectively. Mm -hmm. I think some some real advancements were made to, to handle, you know, high-speed sensor fusion and, and split-second decision-making uh, of, of an autonomous uh, driver stack. I imagine there are a lot of unique things about programming self-driving cars for a high-speed racing environment. What are the applications that you can bring from this racing environment back to the consumer technology environment, especially on the software side, as we see such breakthroughs happen uh, in the racing environment? Yeah, so I think what you're really proving out and validating or what we talk about in the autonomous industry is edge cases, right? How do you test out an algorithm's reaction to 
make a decision in in a very short millisecond time frame when something unexpected is happening. And I think the the other element of this is just do you start to see any breakdown in the in the software's ability to perceive its surroundings mm. based on the hardware that is supporting that 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 algorithm at extreme high speeds. And I think we're going to keep going faster. I I will say that you know, one of the things that that hurt us on the 23rd was the track was very cold that day and the tires were really cold. So we had teams that were very much ready to go 150, 160 miles an hour. And I think we're prepared to get there. And we saw some of those speeds in the straightaways. So I'm excited about Vegas because, you know, it's a little warmer. Uh, mm-hmm. Track should be a little warmer and we should see higher speeds. So no one's really tested autonomous vehicle technology in any consistent manner at, you know, 150 miles per hour and above. So just that test environment is in and of itself, you know, a great incubation tool. So I think it's it's testing edge cases. It's pushing the the hardware and the software to the absolute limit. I think also the vehicle to vehicle communication elements is an important area that we're working on. You know, Cisco was the presenting sponsor of the India Autonomous Challenge event that was held um, on October 23rd at the at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. You know, and they're the provider of some of our vehicle to vehicle communication technology where you're talking about a, a very low latency network, wireless network that's mm. built at the track so that these cars can know where each other are and, and can essentially, you know, be able to communicate back with race control. And, and that's also a new technology area that needs to be proven out. I'm curious to know a little bit more about that vehicle-to-vehicle connectivity. If you're talking about driving on the road, I obviously want to know where every other vehicle is. But if you're talking about a strategic racing environment, were there kind of overarching safety parameters or connectivity guidelines that you had over and above the kind of raw cutthroat strategic considerations you might have in a race? So there, there were, and, there, and, and, and keep in mind, on the 23rd, the competition was limited to time trials. So it was, it was one vehicle at a time, although they did have to do obstacle mm-hmm. avoidance and, and um, detection and avoidance. Um, I will tell you, our plans for Las Vegas Motor Speedway when we run at CES is that we will have multi-vehicles wow. uh, at the same time with passing. So we're going to introduce a passing competition, a format that I'm really excited about, two cars at a time, but where they're, they're passing each other at, at increasingly higher speeds to see kind of who... It's almost like a game of chicken to see who can pass at higher and higher speeds. And eventually somebody can't do it. Right. (laughs) Um, But we do have kind of protocols in place for primarily how race control can see the cars and, and see where the cars are on the track and have that communication. It's not so much the individual teams that get to see that information or even the other cars to make decisions about it. Uh, It's more of a ability of race control to, monitor what's going on, to black flag a car if it needs to slow down and go into the pits, um, frankly, so that the competition can progress. Uh, The reality is, you know, if you've got multiple cars on the track at the same time and there's no communication with it, that's not how racing works, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Crews are talking to the drivers constantly, right, on on headsets and and they're telling the driver, so-and-so is coming on your left, so-and-so is coming on your right, speed up, slow down. So, um, you know, we're trying to figure out how do you create some of that information that that you need in order for for passing and things to occur while at the same time not not overstepping this line of ensuring that everything is done fully autonomously so it's an evolving rule set i mean the reality is the autonomous challenge at, at indy and, and and when we run it at las vegas you know we we work on the rule set in a way that we think reflects uh, a fairness component a technology innovation component and 
allows us to demonstrate where we are in the in the journey toward eventual you know full head to head racing with all the cars on the track at the same time and so that rule set has to be uh it can't be too rigid otherwise you you don't have a, a product to to share with the world yeah and how is the wider world of motorsports perceived what you're up to. I imagine that they're not ready to ditch human drivers anytime soon. That's still very exciting, yeah. but are they learning things from your competition? Yeah. So the, the, the interest level, particularly in the Indy Autonomous Challenge and, and coming out of the 23rd has been very broad globally. And it's been a mix of traditional news, you know, broadcast news from the U.S., from Europe uh, and Asia, uh, the tech community, you know, CES and, and others have obviously loved this and are, you know, all over it and want to see more and more. I think the racing and, and kind of traditional automotive uh, and motorsports community is interested in it. And, and we've got great coverage in some of the leading magazines and industry outlets around motorsports. And, and, and they always ask that question of, is this about a new motorsport series or is this going to replace drivers? And I think our, our answer is no, this is not about replacing drivers in motorsport. I think the whole concept of, you know, man versus machine and man taking on the risk of, of racing is always going to be a part, uh, important part of motorsport for many years to come. But where we're seeing the real interest is in the technology development that's occurring on these autonomous cars. How could those migrate to human driven race cars in ways that would allow uh, mm -hmm. motorsports to advance. I mean, I would like to see human driven race cars at 300 miles an hour someday. Uh, and wow. we're not there. Uh, you know, IndyCar is probably one of the fastest motorsports series and maybe the fastest in the world. And they, they touch 240, you know, but that leap from say 240 to 250 to 300, it increasingly risks human life. And if there's a way to add in, you know, uh, 360 degree perception uh, ability to, to, to mm -hmm. add some level of crash avoidance to navigate when there's smoke and the driver can't see anything, then that's a pathway to faster motorsports that's also safer. And I think that's what everyone in motorsports has always wanted. How do you go faster and do so safely? As we're talking about that future, the future that you're building at the Indy Autonomous Challenge is largely being driven by university students who are the ones who are actually involved in the challenge. Why did you have the competition specifically for university students? Why did you do it globally? Tell me about some of the thought process there and the learnings that came out of it. Well, you know, we've given a lot of credit to the the concept of the Indy Autonomous Challenge prize competition to the predecessor prize competition of the DARPA Grand Challenge that took place in 2004 or five uh, and the DARPA Urban Challenge later. And, you know, that really ushered in the, the modern autonomous vehicle industry. And you see so many companies that came out of that and so many luminaries and innovators that came out of those university-led teams from Stanford and Carnegie Mellon and MIT and uh, University of Michigan and others. And so we wanted to bring that back. And, and we knew that prize competitions are, are a great way to inspire the best and brightest minds, you know, that are largely inside these elite engineering powerhouses and, and research universities uh, around the world. And, and so I think that was always obvious that, that, that they were the only kind of teams that could drop everything and dedicate themselves to this for two years yeah. without a clear return on investment that's financial, right? It's not financially motivated. It's motivated by advancing the state of the art and it aligns with their, their, their research goals. So, you know, the winning team from Technical University of Munich, you know, they had 14 PhD students 
that made up this team. They were supported by a total of, I think there was a total of 40 people on the team. 14 of them were PhD students. But then you had masters and undergraduate students back in Germany working on this, led by an amazing team leader, a professor, uh, Marcus from, from TUM. But it's very hard to find uh, a startup company or even a big for-profit company that would say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allocate 14 of my best sure. engineers and let them work on this challenge for, for two years. So that's why we went the university route. Um, the global nature of it kind of happened unexpectedly. I mean, we, we, the DARPA Grand Challenge really didn't attract international teams. It was run by U.S. Department of Defense, DARPA, so it was unlikely to get a lot of international participation. What was unique about our competition is we have a lot of our top competitors are coming from Europe, from South Korea. At one point, we had, I think, 11 different countries that had universities that signed up. And I think we had nine countries or eight countries represented in it on the 23rd. So this was very much global in nature. And, and the benefit we had was that a lot of the top talent is actually coming from Europe and the European teams placed first, second and third in the, mm. in the final competition. So, you know, I think it also is an opportunity for us to take stock with where we're at and realize that, you know, our U.S. institutions uh, are going to have to continue to invest and progress in order to keep up with with some of our neighbors uh, across the pond, they say. And as you look at the research that came out of this, is this all going to be open and available to the next group of students who do, you know, this challenge or a similar challenge next time? So the teams will all have the advantage of everything that the winning team did and everything everyone else did. The short answer is yes. Um, it, it, it is up to individual teams whether or not they take their final uh, software algorithms and make them available. But TUM, T Technical University of Munich, that won the competition. Uh, made the announcement that they are open sourcing their algorithm. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if it's already been posted. It probably has, but it is available to the entire world. And so you, you asked earlier about what were some of the big breakthroughs. I, I believe that algorithm is a major breakthrough and it proved itself and now it's available to everybody. And so that's exciting. I, I think some of the other teams will do the same. Um, others may have a different strategy. Obviously, universities value IP development and, and need to find ways to monetize that sure. and attract uh, applied research. Um, but overall, yes, our goal is to have this continue to progress, to provide a pathway for perhaps even new, new universities who want to get involved to, to start with uh, simulation tools that can get them up and going and, and get exposed to uh, what's required, but then eventually you know, get their own vehicle and, and begin to compete. Uh, but but yeah, open source approach has always been our preference. So as we look to other industries that might be thinking, hey, uh, doing a competition sounds like a great idea to advance the state of the art. In my corner of the tech world, what advice would you have to other tech leaders who want to do a competition like this? Well, I, you know, heard about and, and you know, we certainly read about the power of prize competitions, whether it's the X Prize or the DARPA Grand Challenge and, and, and others. But I, I've witnessed over the last two years that there's really nothing like it to get broad buy in and focus on a grand challenge. I think my advice, though, is that you have to listen to the voice of the customer uh, before we ever issued a rule set related to the Indie Autonomous Challenge. We brought together not all, but many of the universities that ended up competing and and put them together in a room at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for a workshop and basically bounced a lot of ideas off of them and, and got their input and got their buy-in before anything was announced. So I think I think prize competitions are a great way to motivate, but you've got to also make sure that you're setting the prize competition up in a way that is pushing the state of the art, but also 
achievable to the the audience that you're trying to attract. That's even as simple as aligning it with academic calendars. If you're using universities, mm -hmm. making sure that there's resources available to those universities to be successful, because prize competitions where nobody can succeed or really compete that that doesn't do anybody any good. Um, so it's it's uh, it's a great tool, but you gotta you gotta do it the right way. The first DARPA challenge, as you're mentioning, I think, I think famously nobody completed it, right? Yeah. Nobody actually. Yeah, that one. Yeah. And I think they yeah. learned a lot and they went back and, and, and made adjustments and, and, uh, luckily they and look how far we've come. Yeah. Luckily the, a lot of the best teams, you know, stayed involved. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that didn't happen on the 23rd. I'm glad we, we were able to progress things. Although keep in mind, we did adjust our rule set and, and our rule set moved to, uh, closer to where teams were. So mm -hmm. had we stuck with our original rule set of it has to be a head to head, fully autonomous competition, um, you know, I don't think it, it would have gone as well as it did on the 23rd. We might have still had some teams make it past that finish line, but there would have been a lot of carnage along the way. And I'm not sure that was the best way to uh, preserve the assets of these multimillion dollar you know, uh, race cars. Um, so I, I, I think even DARPA, you know, the lesson was learned in the first year, they didn't make any adjustments in that second DARPA grand challenge. If you talk to Sebastian Thrun or Chris Ermson or people that participated in that, they did actually adjust the rule set all the way up until, yeah. until the end. And, and, and so I think a lesson was learned that you can't be too rigid on those rule sets. So at CES, we are going to see head-to-head uh, -head racing. What do you think? We're going to see, what, we're going to see yeah, at least two passing. cars on the track at the same time yeah. doing, doing a passing and overtaking. Yeah. And do you and do you foresee a, a near term future of all the cars on the track at the same time, just like a regular Indy 500? Yeah, I mean, that's 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 the progression that we're headed toward. Right. So, you, you know, first we went fast. Now we will pass. And then eventually, mm -hmm. you know, we'll, we'll be on to, to racing. So I think put um, that on a T-shirt. That's great. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, Paul, do you have any final thoughts before we close out? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just important to to understand that this competition is is not just about automotive or, or motorsport. And, and while we are excited about all of the people that will be in the West Hall and the automotive pavilion, this is really a competition in data analytics, sensor fusion, machine learning. And that applies to the entire CES universe, right? We want, we want folks to be interested and engaged in what's happening. Uh, the fact that we're doing this in the form factor of a race car uh, is really just about the use case, but the core technologies can be applied to virtually every industry from life sciences to, to, uh, uh, to automotive and, and, and aerospace and beyond. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Paul, and we will see you at CES 2022. See you there. Well, that's our show for now, but there's always more tech to talk about. Subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a moment and get more CES at ces.tech. That's ces.tech. Our show today is produced by Tina Anthony and Kirsten Heizak, recorded by Andrew Lynn and edited by Third Spoon. Special thanks to CTA's John Lindsay for the studio help. I'm James Kotecki, talking tech on CES Tech Talk. <laughs>